So what should we talk about tonight? You want to talk about dependent origination? Dependent origination? I don't have a specific question, but... Yeah, I, I would love to talk about dependent origination. That is actually quite an extensive subject. Um, what caused you to ask the question, even though you don't have a specific question? Because I've heard the teachings a lot from different places, but I don't think I've heard you talk about it in depth. I've heard you mention it now and again. But um, it just seems like a, like one of the keys. Yeah. Of the key it, it is one of the keys. It is something very, uh, it's very important. Probably, it, it's at the very heart what the Buddhist taught, Buddha taught. And probably one of the most important things that he taught that was uh, different from uh, what was known and believed at the time and what other teachers were, were saying. Uh, in its simplest but broadest expression, uh, Dependent origination is the simple statement that absolutely everything originates in dependence upon other things. And probably that may seem more obvious and self-evident to us than it did to people 2,500 years ago. But even today, although intellectually we may find that to be an obvious statement, what we will discover when we examine the way we think and behave is that uh, a lot of our, uh, at a more intuitive level, a lot of our functioning is, is based on, on ignorance of the fact that absolutely everything is dependently originated. Absolutely everything is a result of causes and conditions. Um, and the way he put it as a general principle, the Buddha said, uh, when A is, B comes to B. When A ceases, B ceases. Uh, or when there is A, then there is B. And uh, when there is not A, then there is not B. The idea that, that uh, that everything is the result of causes and conditions. And the reason it was stated in that particular way is to reinforce the recognition that, that when the causes and conditions cease, then that which is the result of those causes and conditions ceases as well. And you know, notice when I said it just now, it had four parts to it. And two of them were temporarily related to the coming into and going out of being. And the other were, the other two were stated in the present. When, when A exists, then B exists. And when A does not exist, then B does not exist. So, um, you go into, we can discuss these in more detail, but I mean, this is what dependent origination is in its most general sense its most global sense, its most all-pervading sense, is that there is absolutely nothing that is not, uh, that is, is not caused. 
And the consequence of that is there is not anything at all that is permanent or eternal because everything passes away when its causes cease to be. Um, and that's significant when you're introducing it into any kind of philosophical or religious system that is positing eternals. Those things that eternally exist are those things that are self-existent, which means that they uh, exist in an unchanging way. The other thing, when you hear the term dependent origination with regard to the Buddha's teaching, is in reference to what is called the chain of dependent origination, or the links of dependent origination. And there are 12 of these. And I'll go through them and then talk, talk to you a bit about them. If you're not familiar with them already, uh, 12 is a large number of new pieces of information to keep in your mind. But once you see how they're connected, it may become easier. So it begins with ignorance. With ignorance as a cause, then karmic formations come to be. And both the karmic part of this and the formations part of this is something that could bear a little expansion. But you might just focus on, just think it in terms of, of actions, karmic, karmic actions. Yeah? You always forget what ignorance is. You always forget what ignorance is? Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> ignorance is the absence of a particular kind of knowledge. And as, as it turns out, the particular thing that we're ignorant of is we're ignorant of the fact that um, that phenomena are empty of any uh, nature of being the way they appear to be, that we are empty of any self. Uh, in other words, there is no self and there's no self nature of things. Uh, ignorance of the fact that all things are impermanent, transitory, in other words, dependently originated. And then, really as a consequence of these is the fact that any clinging to that which is impermanent and empty by uh, a self which doesn't really exist is bound to produce suffering. And so the other aspect of ignorance is the uh, ignorance of the uh, nature of dissatisfactoriness that pervades uh, our existence. So that's what ignorance is. But where there is ignorance, there are karmic actions. So that was the second. The third is, is with karmic actions as a cause, there is consciousness. With consciousness as a cause, there is name and form. With name and form as a cause, there are the six sense bases. Six, which are the five physical senses, plus the mind, which uh, is the sense organ that knows mental logic. So with name and form as a cause, there are the six sense bases. 
with the sixth sense basis as a cause. There's contact, contact being contact between uh, a, a sense organ, a sense object, and the consciousness. So with the, the sense basis as a cause, there's contact. With contact as a cause, there's feeling. And by feeling, we mean not sensations and not emotions, we mean very specifically the affective quality of pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant. So with contact with the senses as a cause, there arises feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. With feeling as a cause, there arises craving. With craving as a cause, there arises grasping or clinging, which is a word hugely laden with meaning, but implicit within it is the process by which our mind reifies the sense of self and reifies the object that we are experiencing. Reifies means makes it real. So where there is craving, there is clinging or grasping, this reification process. Where there is clinging or grasping as a cause, there is becoming. Not being, but becoming. Becoming something other than what is. With becoming as a cause, there is birth. And then finally, the twelfth link is with birth as a cause, there is old age and death. Now, this is divided, these 12 links, and the, the links of dependent origination, as we find them in the Buddha's teaching, don't always, there's not always 12. There is up to 12. Some places are described as 12. Some places there's only 8, some there's only 6. Some he speaks in terms of only 3 or 4 or 5 of them. But they're always in the same order, and, and the, the 12 is the total. We take the whole of 12. The first two are said to be referring to the past. The eight in the middle are referring to what's happening in the present. And the last two are said to be referring to the future. So one way that you can look at this, perhaps the most simplistic and primitive way of looking at this, is that through ignorance, karmic actions were performed in a past life, as a result of which I am bound to the wheel of samsara, and so I am a conscious being experiencing name and form with sense organs through which I experience contact, pleasure and pain, craving, clinging, and becoming. As a result of these in this life, I'm creating the conditions to be reborn in the future. And because of that rebirth, I shall experience uh, old age and death. The Buddha said when he first figured this out, he went backwards. He said, he asked himself, what is the cause of all of this suffering? Well, it's old age and death. What's the cause of old age and death? Well, it's birth. And what's the cause of birth? Well, it's becoming, and so forth. So he, 
supposedly discovered these by working his way backwards through them. And what he was looking for was a way to escape from suffering. But, and it is at the heart of all of the Buddhist teachings, the, the concept of dependent origination. So, I could speak in so many different directions, but what I'd like to do is just stay with the basic 12 links and the and the relationship to the more global concept and see what the implications are for the rest of the teaching. One is that it is experiential. The Buddha, everything about the Buddha's teaching is having us take life, take our existence, from an experiential point of view, entirely from an experiential point of view. So these links are describing processes, experiential processes. And if we look at those eight in the middle, they can describe what's happening in each moment of our lives. They can be taken to describe what's happening uh, in each circumstance of, of our lives that happens to arise. And, and there's many different circumstances we find ourselves in in the course of a day. It can be taken to uh, describe events as they unfold as a process over any given length of time, including <coughs> an entire lifetime. They're very flexible in those terms. So the first two, ignorance and uh, ignorance and uh, karmic formations, could be taken to refer to uh, what happened yesterday or what happened just a second ago. And likewise, uh, one of the more subtle uh, teachings is that uh, to be birth, old age, and death is not just describing that event that happens when our mother gives birth to us and that terminates when we draw our last breath and the, the aggregates begin to disintegrate, but that each morning when you wake up, you are reborn into the world and you, the, the being that wakes up in the morning inherits inherits its own past and that every night when you go to sleep is like a death. Uh, but also each new experience you're doing one thing and that experience ends and a new experience begins. A new object of consciousness a new situation to think about and deal with. You're reborn each time your life takes a different turn, which happens over and over again throughout the course of the day. The phone rings. You're doing one thing. The phone rings. And that's the beginning of a whole new episode, isn't it? And it will work its way through, and it will come to its own end. It will age, and it will cease, and it will be replaced by something new. And even moment to moment. So. 
dependent origination is describing the process that makes up our life at every at every level from from the momentary to our lifetime as a whole. And uh, we've talked about these links in different ways, in many different ways, uh, over the last few months. But let's narrow down on a certain group of these that because of contact there's feeling, pleasant or unpleasant. Because of pleasant or unpleasant, there's craving. Craving for more of the pleasant, plus of the unpleasant. Because of craving, there is clinging. Our mind forms an idea of this as the cause of my pleasure and of the self as the experiencer of the pleasure. And the craving motivates us to obtain more of that pleasure. And so that leads to the becoming. So contact, feeling, craving, clinging, and becoming. What do you become? Most immediately, you become a self, an I, filled with desire for whatever the object is that is filling your consciousness in that moment. I want that. You know, at the level of an instant, you know, you see a chocolate chip oatmeal cookie and you become an I wanting a cookie. Right? And this, this is repeating itself over and over again, constantly. So, in the other teachings that we've examined, we've seen, we've seen how the Buddha taught that Human existence is, is pervaded with dissatisfactoriness in one form or another, some so extreme that we would call it suffering, and some so mild that we would just describe it as being uh, dissatisfying, but absolutely everything in between. And uh, in the analysis of that, we discovered that pleasant and unpleasant are of two types. The, that which arises uh, through the physical senses and that which arises in the mind. And so there is this truth that although pain and pleasure are inevitably a part of life, those are the thing, pain and pleasure are what arises by means of the physical senses, that although pain and pleasure are inevitably a part of life, joy and suffering or not. Joy and suffering arise in the mind. And if you can understand how and why joy and suffering arise, then they become optional. That, so. And we've seen that suffering, that the mental states of suffering, and indeed all mental states of, of uh, dissatisfaction to whatever degree, are the result of craving. Craving is that which in, within us which rejects what is and propels us towards some future in which things will be different, in which there will be more of that which is pleasant and less of that which is unpleasant, hopefully. 
That's the objective of the compulsion that propels us. The craving is this compulsion that causes us to deny what is, that costs us the present moment for the sake of some hypothetical future that we cling to. And that's where the clinging comes in and the becoming, so that we become the being that instead of being in the present, we're becoming something else in the future. And we're constantly on the treadmill of pursuing that. And so these links are describing how this happens. Contact, feeling, craving, clinging, and becoming. And becoming is the last of the middle eight. So becoming is what gives rise to the next moment of our existence, where we're reborn now as a being in a different kind of situation, with a different kind of sense contact, and with a different kind of feeling. So this is the result of the becoming. Whatever it is that we said or did or even thought has generated a new being. Now, it's not completely linear, because sometimes the becoming one day is the result of something that manifests another day in the future. But we can always take whatever is manifesting in the present and that we can see that it is the result of this process in the past. And so dependent origination is describing this continual process that makes our life what it is, that makes us what we are. Because in this new moment of being, there is consciousness. Now, and this is because when we make the basis of our discussion to be experiential, there can be no experience without consciousness, right? So there's consciousness. And where there's consciousness, there's name and form. There's the body and the mind. The main part, the mind part, this consists, as we've spoken before, of uh, mental formations. That's our cumulative past experience. So, yes, we have sense organs. And when contact occurs, the kind of perception we have, the experience we have at that point in the process is determined by our previous mental formations. That it determines what experience that we're going to have of this thing in the present moment, how we're going to perceive it. We, you meet a new person, you like them, you don't like them, you believe, you, you create an idea in your mind of what kind of person that they are. This is all based on your past experience in that formation. Every new experience is the perception that you have is going to be based on your past experiences. And likewise, the feeling that's generated, pleasant or unpleasant, is generated by your past experiences. So your mind reacts to this with craving. And the craving leads to clinging and becoming. So you see how this is a description of the ongoing process of your life at whatever level you want to look at. Go first and second, okay?
else. <coughs> Impermanence, oh, yes. emptiness, that clinging to these things causes suffering. Well, see, this is this is a wonderful question, and this is the whole point of the sequence of dependent origination, is to understand it so you can learn how to interrupt it. So you can bring it to an end. So, um, depending on how much wisdom that you have, and that's the opposite of ignorance, is wisdom. But uh, if you have even just a little bit of wisdom, you might restrain yourself from, uh, from saying and doing particular things. With a little bit more wisdom, you might observe the newly created mental formations that you're attempting to identify with and you might decline to identify with them. Okay, and so what you're doing here is you're, uh, you're directly uh, altering the, the karmic process of what you're, what you're going to experience in the future by, um, by altering what you do and you say. If it was something unwholesome, you don't do it. Uh, maybe instead you, you say or do something that is positive and beneficial. So wisdom can act at the last link of the chain and, of course, affect what happens prior to that. The process of, of, of clinging or reification or attachment, if we have understanding of emptiness, the, the more clearly we can understand the the emptiness of our experience, meaning that our experience, well, all we're experiencing is what our mind, the experience that the mind generates. It's a, it's our, it's a, how we experience things is a projection of our mind. So we see that, that emptiness, and also if we have a good, clear understanding of the emptiness of our self, that there's not really a self that is behind all of this, doing all of this, and having this happen to them. Then, then this tends to overcome, overcome the clinging, the grasping. But most importantly, if we have completely uprooted the attachment to self, then we can uproot craving. And so when there is no ignorance, a Buddha has overcome ignorance and instead is possessed of wisdom. So that very first link does not lead to karmic formations. Um, if we look at the middle eight, the process of what happens, a Buddha, while still alive and walking the earth, is conscious, has name and form, the sense bases are present, experiences contact, and as a result of contact, there is pleasure and pain. A Buddha has completely overcome craving. Craving is the cause of suffering. And the third noble truth is the truth of the overcoming of suffering by the cessation of craving. And the fourth truth was the eightfold path that leads to the uh, cessation of craving and suffering. So the Buddha has accomplished that. So the Buddha has no craving. And so in the course 
of a Buddhist daily life, where is consciousness, there is nama and rupa, body and mind. Uh, there are, are the sense bases and sense objects uh, ensuing uh, uh, experiences of pleasure and pain, but there is no craving. There is no resistance to pain, so there is no suffering in response to it. There is no clinging to pleasure, so pleasure happens without producing the dissatisfactoriness that comes from the fading of pleasure or the non-return of pleasure. So that's what makes the difference. And so in terms of the whole process, what we focus in on is that in terms of the eight links in the middle, craving is the one that we ultimately want to overcome. Because that will, that will eliminate the, uh, the suffering. And so that means then that we've truncated the process that in the past, instead of ignorance, there was wisdom. And by the past, we might mean five minutes ago or just a moment ago or yesterday. But if you're a Buddha, then your past, your yesterday, consisted of wisdom and that wisdom did not lead to karmic formations. Okay, Due to karmic formations that existed prior to you becoming a Buddha, you are conscious, and you have a mind and body, and uh, you have experiences and pleasure and pain. But there are no craving arises, so this, this does not lead to suffering, at least does not lead to clinging and becoming and suffering. So this also means that those last two links, uh, birth, aging, and death, just simply don't happen. You know, coming into being of a self doesn't happen. Yes? Well, it's a, yes. What's happened is some very profound changes have taken place, but they are as a result of wisdom, as a result of understanding, as a result, as a result of realizing the emptiness of self. It has been possible to uproot craving, and so the mind of the Buddha no longer reacts to pleasure and pain through craving. Just, it's not 
cerita. Subjectively, what it's like, uh, what you think, it, what we think it might be like to be a Buddha in the world. Okay, a, a Buddha experiences everything, trees and people, likewise, uh, as they are. So this entails this entails a knowledge of the true nature of things that goes beyond the appearances that we see. But a Buddha, because he has a body and a brain and a mind, also knows the kind of appearances that our, our eye creates when we look at an object that we know is a tree. So the Buddha knows the appearance of a tree as a human being knows the appearance of a tree. But the Buddha also knows the true nature of the, the tree as well. The Buddha is free from suffering, so he's happy. And the epithet by which the Buddha was normally referred to was tathagata, which means gone. Tata means thusness or suchness, and gata means gone. So gone to suchness, gone to that which is the way it is. And so dwelling in that, the Buddha is free from all suffering and experiences the most sublime sort of bliss that cannot be affected by the things that happen uh, to his body or that he sees in front of him. But he has the same kind of... Uh, he, he knows the appearance of things the same way we know the appearance of things. So in that way, it's the same. The Buddha acts... But the Buddha's actions come not from emotion, not from compulsion, not from desire, or not from aversion. They come from wisdom, and they come from a quality of compassion, love and compassion, which is the result of seeing things as they truly are. It's not, it's not the kind of love and compassion that... Uh, we normally experience because it has a much profound, more profound basis than that. I mean, it's not different. Uh, I, I love is still love and compassion is still compassion, but we're quite limited compared to a Buddha in the, uh, in the depth and the extent of love and compassion. Love and compassion take the place of desire and aversion in motivating the Buddha. People say, well, okay, there's no craving. Why does Buddha ever get out of bed in the morning? And that's the answer. Why does Buddha ever do anything? Why did the Buddha Siddhartha Gautama ever bother to teach, to go all that trouble, spend 45 years teaching? And love and compassion, that's the answer. And this is a love and compassion that is born of the knowledge of things as they truly are, of the true nature of reality. So that's why the Buddha does. What the Buddha does, motivated by this love and compassion, what the Buddha does then is based in wisdom. And so that's how a Buddha acts. 
So a Buddha would continue to interact with people. The Buddha, you know, he went home to visit his his uh, uh, mother and his son and all of his other relatives, and he continued to have relationships with uh, other many other human beings, which are described over and over again. They were good friends, close to him. Uh, his chief disciples, uh, Ananda, his cousin, who basically took care of him, uh, looked after, you know, fulfilled this function of, of secretary and screener of who got to see the Buddha and made sure that his needs were looked after and so on and sort of gave him a back rub when, when he got to be really old, you know. 45 years of sleeping on the ground, actually there's 52 years because he spent seven years before he became enlightened. 52 years of sleeping in the woods can be hard on the body. So Ananda gave him a background. He had a relationship with Ananda and it's recounted. So he had, he had relationships with people, but he was different in the ways we just talked about. Does that help to get kind of what you get? ask more questions, but I think, oh, wait. Let's, let's, let's take uh, a couple of other questions. We'll take yours and, and then we'll take Mike's. That's the question she had, so. No, 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 go ahead. I, I, I'm not sure I should ask the next one. The question dried up? It was exactly the same question Peggy asked. Oh, so. wow, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. That's Mike. Which one? <laughs> <laughs> so, the, uh, the idea I had was uh, if. Is there a difference between uh, uh, craving and seeking something in a noble quest? Yes, there is a difference. And this is something that can be uh, confusing because, um, you know, we, we talk about craving and we begin to form the idea that, well, Craving's a bad thing. Desire's a bad thing. So, well, what about the desire to become enlightened? Does that mean that's a bad thing, too? And one way to look at this is we have to start where we are. And if, if the desire that our mind generates is moving us in such a noble direction as to achieve our own awakening, then that's a good thing. Now, the fact is that at the very end of the process, even that desire must be given up. But if that desire has carried us to the end of the process, then we can afford to give it up. Before then, uh, if we didn't have that desire, we still have desires, and some less wholesome desire would drive us in a different direction. Uh, I just heard a good one today. It's use desire to desire enlightenment and desire. Say again? Use desire desire, enlightenment, and desire. That's true. Use desire to obtain enlightenment and end desire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's a really important principle in the Buddhist teachings because there's not some kind of divine being that's going to do this for us. You know, and some other person that's enlightened cannot enlighten us. The Buddha can't go around enlightening other people. He can show them how to enlighten themselves. So it's absolutely essential. Nobody could ever become awakened except that we're able to start with what we are. 
and wherever we are, and basically pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. So could that be also applied to um, to pleasure? Like you 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 get pleasure as a, as a gift, but you're not attached to that you need it for your happiness, but you enjoy it, and the mm -hmm. craving stops in the moment you enjoy it, when it passes, and you, you move on, right? That's right, yes. But you still enjoy it. Yeah. That's right. Pleasure... Pleasure does not cease. Uh, it, Buddhas experience pleasure and pain, but without attachment to them. Yeah. So. Other questions or comments? Yes. Just as she said that, I was just thinking about the contrast between that approach to <coughs> pleasure and pain, and the and the uh, the approach of, of of mortification, which you know is in some practices is yeah. it, of, of trying to uh, I don't know trying to to somehow kill or or, or punish the the attachment, which is. Is seems like a diametrically opposed way of of, uh, of looking at it. I yes, it, it is a completely different way. To repeat the question, uh, to repeat the question you, you said, this sounds like a very different way than mortification, which some practices uh, involve mortification. It's a completely different way of dealing with suffering, and the Buddha did that for five years. He engaged in extreme austerities with much mortification of the body, um, because he w he was trying out the teachings of some schools that uh, uh, taught that as the path. Um, there were there was one school that uh, essentially believed that uh, all action of any kind was ultimately harmful. Everything that you did caused some sort of, of destruction or death. Every step you took, every breath you, you took. And so, therefore, according to that system of belief, there was no such thing as um, good karma. But any, any karma was bad karma because it caused suffering to something. And so the ideal was to do nothing at all. And as a matter of fact, the ideal of that tradition was to starve to death. Pretty bizarre. <laughs> and then there was another tradition that was, I, I think, uh, a bit different than that, but also quite extreme. But the idea was that to overcome suffering, that the way to overcome suffering was to, to, was to keep exposing yourself to so much pain that eventually the mind gave up its clinging and uh, you no longer suffered. And so this led to practices of uh, uh, doing things that were extremely painful to the body. Standing on one leg for many hours, uh, uh, staring at the sun, which actually can cause total blindness if you do it for very long. Uh, going without water, going without food, uh, sleeping on uh, sleeping on uh, 
sharp shards of broken pottery, uh, all kinds of different things to put yourself constantly in a state of pain with the idea that at some point the mind is going to transcend pain and transcend suffering. And the Buddha, after his enlightenment, his very first teaching, um, which was to uh, five fellow ascetics that he had lived with and practiced with for several years. And of course, at first they didn't want anything to do with him. They saw him coming and they said, Ah, oh, Gautama, he's been eating and taking it easy and you know, bathing. And we won't, we'll pretend he isn't there and not talk to him. But they, they, they couldn't resist. They had, to, they had to invite him to sit down and talk. The very first thing he told them uh, is that he uh, had came to teach them the middle way between indulgence and between austerities. So it is, this is a very different approach. The opposite approach to mortification of the flesh would be total indulgence. So this is the this this is a way in between where you overcome craving. Anyway, maybe I can trigger some more questions or thoughts in you. Um, by the way, I know some of you have the life of the Buddha and you've been reading the sutras and following that. And, uh, um, is, I think relevant to this and, and a very interesting thing is um, the two chief disciples of the Buddha, not too, not too long after he started teaching, he was joined by two... Uh, Two men who became his chief disciples, Sariputra, you may know that name, Sariputta, and Mahamogalana. And uh, it's an interesting story about these two. And I think it relates very much to dependent origination, which is the idea that all is process, all is due to causes and conditions, and of course nothing is permanent processes change continually. As a matter of fact, the fullest understanding of this is that there are no things. There's no such thing as a thing. There are only processes. There is only change. Okay? And therefore, all of those things, which are creations and projections of our mind, we take a process and we grasp onto it cling to it as a thing. But all things are as a result of causes and conditions and are bound to pass away. Now, Mogulana and Sariputta had been very, very close friends their whole life. And they were both of a spiritual disposition. And they had, of course, studied the Vedas and Probably the early Upanishads had become uh, available at that time. We're a basis, actually, for many of what spiritually-minded people who left home and went out to practice was on the basis of the Vedas and the Upanishads. And so, because of their studying and teaching, they would have been very familiar with the Brahmanical 
doctrine of continuous reincarnation in the cycle of samsara. That, uh, and the Brahmins, uh, each Brahmin kept certain three ritual fires in his home, which he tended, and performed rituals. And it was the maintenance of the fires and the performance of the proper performance of the rituals, which long ago had been first, this was the first activity that the name karma had been attached to. And the results of this karma, of maintaining the fires and performing the rituals, was to continue the world as it was, so that the gods would keep the sun rising and setting and the rain falling and the crops growing and everything else happening the way it was. And of course, if they failed to do that, the bad karma would be uh, floods and droughts and things like that. And then this extended to the individual. The individual, if they did what was proper, they died and then they were reborn in good circumstances, and it came to be that, that no matter what your status in life, you know, and there was the system of castes, is that if you fulfilled the function of your place in life and your place in the world, if you were a housewife of a particular caste, then there was a way to behave, a way to do things, a way to live. And if you did that perfectly, then you would be reborn in, under good circumstances, and if you didn't, under bad circumstances. So there was this long-standing belief in the cycle of death and rebirth, and its dependence upon the actions, the way people lived and behaved, of karma. But at some point, it, I suppose, dawned on people that, hey, you know, rebirth means re-death. How do we get out of this? And so the doctrine that evolved is that according to the Brahmanical tradition, everything had arisen from a primary principle of Brahma, which was, of course, also personified as a, as a male deity called Brahman, who was the creator of everything. Really sort of behind that was the idea of this principle of Brahma which consisted of pure, absolutely pure, being, consciousness, and bliss. And that each individual person had a soul, an atma, and that the way, which was what was reborn one life to the next, and that the way to achieve deliverance from the cycle of redeath, because rebirth wasn't the problem, it was redeath that was the problem, to escape, to to escape from this and to obtain deliverance from the process of redeath, if one could discover the truth of the Atman's unity with Brahma, then when one died, one would permanently join Brahma and never be reborn. And so much of the spiritual quest was devoted to discovering the true self, the Atma. If you could discover the true self and discover the oneness of, of uh, the Atma with Brahma, then that experience of oneness in this life would lead to liberation from samsara at the time of death. And that is what 
Mogulana and Sariputta were seeking. And so they went forth from their families, they were from well-to-do families. And as a matter of fact, their parents, Sariputta's mother never forgave them until the day she died for you know, going off and becoming an ascetic. But they went off in pursuit of this holy quest of to discover the self and to achieve liberation. And they spent, and they made a pact that if either one of them succeeded in um, discovering in, in, in discovering this and in, in, uh, the, the undying, that experiencing the undying, that they would immediately tell the other. And so they spent a number of years uh, totally dedicated to the research of discovering the true self. And then One, what happened one day, Asariputra uh, met one of the very early disciples of the Buddha. This was in, very early in the Buddha's career. And so this is one of the, the very first disciples. As a matter of fact, it might have been one of the five ascetics that he gave the first teaching to, if I'm not mistaken, although my memory's not really clear on that. He says... Uh, It was the Venerable Asaji was the, the uh, monk that Asariputra saw. When the Venerable Asaji had finished his round, this was his alms round, collecting some food, he left Rajagaha with his alms food. Then the wanderer Sariputra went up to him and greeted him. When this courteous formal talk was finished, he stood at one side and he said to him, Friend, your faculties are serene. The color of your skin is clear and bright. Under whom have you gone forth? Or who is your teacher? Or whose law do you confess? And uh, Asaji responded, There is the great monk, friend, the son of the Sakyans, who went forth from a Sakyan clan. I have gone forth under that blessed one. He is my teacher. It is that blessed one's law that I confess. But what does the Venerable One's teacher say? What does he tell? Well, I've only recently gone forth, friend. I've only just come to this law and discipline. I cannot teach you the law in detail. Still, I will tell you its meaning in brief. Then Sariput just said, So be it, friend. Say much or little as it suits you. Tell me but the meaning now, for I need no more than the meaning, with no thought of details yet. And the Venerable Saji told the wanderer Sariputta this sketch of the law. The perfect one has told the cause of causally arisen things. Recognize that? <laughs> and what brings their cessation, too. Such is the doctrine preached by the great monk. Now, when the wanderer Sariputta heard this statement of the law, the spotless, immaculate vision of the Dhamma arose in him. All that is subject to arising is subject to cessation. This is the truth. Even if that were all, you have attained the state where there is no sorrow. That we are for many times, 10,000 ages, have let pass by unseen. So then Sariputra, the wanderer, went to his friend Mogalana, the wanderer. Mogalana, the wanderer, 
while I saw him coming. He said, your faculties are serene, friend. The color of your skin is clear and bright. Is it possible that you have found the deathless? Yes, friend, I have found the deathless. But how did you find it, friend? Sariputra, the wanderer, told what had happened. When Moggallana, the wanderer, heard that statement of the law, the perfect one has told the cause of causally arisen things. And what brings their cessation to? Such is the doctrine preached by the great monk. Then the spotless, immaculate vision of the Dhamma arose in him. All that is subject to arising is subject to cessation. And so they both they were woken very simply. And you might look at that and say, oh, yeah. <laughs> Wish I could wake up that easy. <laughs> but you see, the, the important thing is all of the time that they had spent searching for the self, the discovery of which was going to achieve for them the union with the divine Brahma. And what had they found in all that you know, those years of searching? Make a guess. What? That's right, no self, no matter where they look. Nope, no self there. Nope, nothing, nada. Not this, not that, nope, not here, not there, nope. They've actually been doing a wonderful practice, which all they needed was somebody to come along and say just the right thing, and they realized, oh yeah, <laughs> of course. That's right, we've had it all along. That's exactly what he said. We've had it all along. That, that, that we, for many times, 10,000 ages, have let pass by unseen. <laughs> exactly. So, so, you know, all of these ideas, they all fit together. They all mesh together. And, and at the heart of them is this, this dependent origination that everything arises as a result of uh, causes, and everything passes away as a result of causes and conditions, including all of those things that we might attach to as, as being a self of any sort. And so if you have put that much effort and that much time into examining, looking for the atma, in yourself, in others, in the universe at large, then you've prepared the mind, you've made it ready, and all it needs is the final clue to have it all come together in the right way. And then these two came to be the chief disciples of, of the Buddha, and uh, wonderful teachers, both of them. Many of the suttas actually um, are, are spoken by Sariputta or Mogadam. Sutra. The Heart Sutra. Is that the Heart Sutra? Well, the Heart Sutra, yes, yes as, as, a, as a matter of fact. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so. Inspire any further questions? It's 8.35, so I could always let you go home and have something to eat. <laughs> <laughs> yes? Well, what would the Buddha think about uh, all of our modern science today? I mean, we have applied 
psychology and genetics and rocket science and all of that. I mean, um, what would he think of it? Well, the Buddha's concern was always with uh, the obtaining of true wisdom and the end of suffering. And uh, so I think that the Buddha would recognize it for, for the wonderful thing that it is in its own very, very limited sphere. But the first thing that he would probably say to us about it is, why aren't you using that wisely? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> why are you using it? You know, why have you put all of this power to, to uh, the use of desire and aversion? Of greed and hatred, and because that's what we've done. You know, it's just we, we've turned it entirely uh, to the purposes of greed and hatred. And so I think that's the very first thing that he would point out to us. And he would perhaps point out to uh, the scientists who are seeking ultimate answers through understanding the material universe. I think he'd point out these very basic things that he taught to everyone else. And I think they might catch on to them really quickly, too. I think if the Buddha came and taught modern scientists, they'd get the Dharma right away. Um, but I think he, he would want everyone to be aware that wisdom is more important, infinitely more valuable than scientific knowledge. And that through obtaining wisdom that scientific knowledge could be put to the use of, of easing the pain uh, that is an inevitable part of being born in the form that we are. So, um, just along those same lines, the Dalai Lama is very, very interested in interface between traditional Buddhist teachings and science. And so there has been an ongoing series of collaborations between the Dalai Lama and many of the high lamas that uh, many of the, the very, very uh, brilliantly trained uh, and quite high lamas that are in association with him, with the greatest scientists of the modern world, the preeminent physicists and biologists, uh, neuroscientists, uh, many different disciplines, in a series of meetings. They, they annually meet for a, about a week of discussion, and the publications of some of these uh, meetings are available. And I highly encourage you, if you have any interest in that at all, to, to read these. What is amazing is how how much modern science and ancient Buddhist teachings coincide, say the same things, have come to the same conclusions and discovered the same things. So, from deep, completely different, profoundly different uh, perspectives and starting points, because the entire concern of Buddhism is 
is with the mind, with experience, and above all, with, uh, with transcending of suffering. And all of Buddhist science involves what you do when you sit down and close your eyes, <laughs> or when you pay attention to what's happening in your mind while you're busy in the world. Whereas uh, Western science is totally concerned with the physical, with the material. So that these two so radically different approaches with such radically different intentions in mind should come to so many of the same conclusions. And the Buddha has always said, if science ever, if ever contradicts any Buddhist doctrine, if science clearly demonstrates that it's a falsehood, then it goes out the window immediately. <laughs>